series, the book of Acts, chapter 25, verses 1 to 22. Uh, But before we read from the text, I want to give you an overview and a reminder of how we've ended up where we are in the passage. Uh, If you watch many TV shows, maybe you recognize this as the part where we say previously on, (laughs) previously on the book of Acts. uh, You might remember a few weeks ago that Paul was warned. He was warned about what would happen if he came to Jerusalem and he had settled in his mind, I'm willing to do anything. I'm even willing to die for the sake of the gospel. And so he came and as he as was predicted, he was set upon by an angry mob. He was rescued by Roman soldiers who rescued him by arresting him. Uh, He was accused of sedition. He was accused of desecrating the temple. At one point, there was a conspiracy to kill him, and so to save his neck, he was sent by Lysias to Felix. Then you may remember last week, the, the, the lawyers and accusers came to Felix. They made their case. The problem was they didn't bring any evidence. They didn't bring their witnesses. And so Paul answered the charges, and then something happened. He was just left to rot in prison for two Years because Felix wanted a bribe and Paul wouldn't pay it. And after two years, there was a change in leadership. Festus became the new ruler. And that is where our passage picks up this morning with a change of the regime, as it were. And so this is Paul's opportunity, perhaps, to stop rotting in his prison cell and maybe finally gain a chance at freedom. So would you please stand together? As we read from God's word from the book of Acts, chapter 25, verses 1 to 22. Hear now the word of God. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the law laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer, and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. 
Now when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, make us glad, along with Paul today. Help us to reflect Jesus in our lives and to look like the Savior. Help us to love the Savior. Help us to want to resemble him. Give us a savor of his glory and goodness today as we have him revealed in the word. Give us your Holy Spirit to make it so. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. A few years ago, Francis Schaeffer released a book and a video series. It was called How Should We Then Live? And in that book and in that series, he took the reader on sort of a walking tour of Western civilization, showing how the the modern world has not only been born out of Christian ethics, the Judeo-Christian worldview, but in recent years has trampled upon that exact same worldview and left left itself defenseless and reasonless in many ways. And the question that he posed in the video series was, how do we and how do we as Christians live? How are we supposed to function in a society like the one we live in now, this post-Christian, Christ-haunted world? How do we live here? And, and, and sort of the answer that he gave was, just because the world around us changes and says we should be like this or we should be like that does not mean that we as Christians should become like them. So how should we then live? He said we should live as public people who live before the face of God, knowing that we will have to answer to God for the way that we have lived and spoken and taught and acted in our daily lives. In other words, the way that we have lived actually matters. Now, as far as how we live before the watching world, I do think that today's text gives us a a bit of a spotlight on the Apostle Paul and how he lived his life in a very public way before the watching world. And especially with regard to how he lived with his conscience, with the government, and most importantly before God. So as we, as we look at Paul and as we look at his interaction, especially 
with Festus and Agrippa today, we get a glimpse of that sort of balanced character that we should have as Christians. Uh, a character that's, that's earthly and grounded, but a character that's also heavenly and grounded in the promises of God. We have our feet firmly planted in both kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. So how do we live like that? How do we prioritize these things? Well, I think in the text we find some principles that show how Paul navigates these complexities and lives in the context of the government here this morning. So three principles that I think will help us to answer the question, how are we supposed to live in complex times like the ones we find ourselves? Well, we see three things about Paul. He has a blameless character. He is an earthly citizen, but he has a heavenly verdict. So we have a blameless character, an earthly citizen, and a heavenly verdict. Let's see all three this morning. The first principle I want you to see is a blameless character. We see Paul's blameless character in several ways in the passage. In the the previous reading, the one that we looked at last Sunday, we actually saw Paul could have been spared two years in prison if he would just do one little thing that was probably in his power, and that is bribe Felix, give Felix a little money. And yet Paul refused to do it. He he wouldn't give in to the temptation to, to move the process along. Um, and we see why in Scripture, Proverbs 15, 27 says, whoever hates bribes will live. And Paul wants to live. He wants to keep what God says in his word. In another place, the Proverbs say, the wicked accepts a bribe in secret to pervert the ways of justice. So if Paul had paid that bribe, he would have perverted the way of justice and he would have made Felix sin. He would have made Felix sin by giving him a bribe. The law of God, which really spells out what it means to obey God, says in Exodus 23, 8, You shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. So, so Paul won't lower himself to this place where he subverts the cause of the right. And think about how tempting it would have been, especially in Paul's position. You could almost imagine the internal argument that he would have, the sort of justification he would bring for why he should maybe pay the bribe. Think of all the good that I can do out there. Think of how useful I could be. Think of all the churches I could plant. Think of all the church sessions that I could bless and I could come teach if I could just be free of this place. And you can just imagine the rationalization growing in his mind as each month slowly passes and one month turns into another month, which turns into a year, which turns into two years. He could tell himself, this isn't a bribe. This is shrewdness. This is wisdom. This is is cleverness. And his blamelessness. He knows this. He knows that if he's accused, he knows that if he pays the bribe and he's accused, that it will actually be true. Right now he's innocent, but if he crosses that line, he won't be anymore. You see, he's blameless in a couple other ways in our passage. In verse 11, he says, If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which to deserve death, I do not seek to escape death. 
He, he actually says, look at, look at the integrity he has. He says, he says, if I've broken the law, if I've committed the crime, I'm willing to do the time. If I've done something wrong, I won't try to get out of it. I'll face it like a man. I'll plead guilty. It's like Paul would go above and beyond to be punished if he was guilty. That's the sort of character this man has. He, he'll submit to the authority even if it means something bad happening to him. That's what he says. But the other side of it is that Paul's continued claim is this. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. So the accusation can't stick because the accusation isn't true. Paul knows because he's lived with integrity. He sought to live with a blameless character. It's sort of like when you go to your child and you say, I know what you did. And they immediately look concerned. Um, if you're innocent and someone comes to you and says, I know what you did, you can just be confused. But if you're guilty, if you've ever confronted a guilty person and maybe you weren't even confronting them about the thing they thought was wrong. You just see that look of terror on their face. What of the thousand things I did could you be busting me for? And yet they come to Paul and Paul says, I've got nothing. I've got nothing. I'm blameless. He has sought all his life to make sure that any accusations that are made against him are not true. He's lived with that kind of integrity. He listens to his conscience. He said that the last time when he was before Ananias. He said, I listen to my conscience. Enemies and villains can accuse Christians all day long. And they can even win in the court of law if they're clever enough. And that goes for Paul as well. Um, surely he, he could be back on the streets in no time if he were willing to take shortcuts. But to Paul, above all else, the most important question is not, how can I get out of this situation? How can I get my freedom? To Paul, the most important question is, are the charges true or not? Am I guilty? And Paul has confidence here because he's lived his life in such a way that every court that examines him finds no fault in his life, that they can convince him of wrong, convict him of wrongdoing. And so Paul says, if I have done anything to deserve death, I do not seek to escape death. His integrity matters that much. He would rather die than pervert justice. Christian, the question should never be, will I get in trouble? The question should always be, should I get in trouble? Those are very different questions. The law can't see everything that you do. Even the elders of the church can't see everything that you do. The question is, should I be in trouble? And if the answer is yes, we should face the consequences, consequences, just like Paul says. See, whether or not the government knows you've done something wrong, God cares far more about how you live when you think you're not being watched. Paul tells the Philippians, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He told the Ephesians something similar. He said, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. See, see, Paul's instruction is not don't get caught. His instruction is don't deserve to be caught. 
get underneath of the crime. See, see, we've seen the importance of living with absolute integrity even when no one else is watching in recent years. We've learned that we should expect nothing that happens in our private lives, especially our digital lives, stay secret forever. Do you live your life so blamelessly, even when no one else is around, that you'd be okay with others seeing what you search for on Google? Would you let someone else see your browser history on your computer? If your private life were to be exposed and seen by the world, would it pass muster? Paul says, his would. He says, we should be striving to live in such a way that it could pass muster. So how do you live? If you were accused of something, could you say with Paul, I am sure that I've walked in a manner worthy of the gospel? Paul lives in the midst of these Romans, and he has a blameless character, and it's how he's able to be so confident. We are called to live, and we're called to aim to live in the same way. Now, we will see in the third point, God has a solution to the reality. The reality is we all fall short. The reality is none of us live perfectly, blamelessly, and yet God sets before us a target. He says, aim At the goodness of Christ. Aim to live like that. The second principle we see in Paul's life. In the way that he lives in the world. Is that he's an earthly citizen. So in other words. He avails himself of the legal options that he has. He avails himself of the options that are presented to him. He argues his case repeatedly as we've seen. We're going to see him argue it again next week. For the last time. Uh, but you may, and you may almost be tired of hearing Paul defend himself. See, the Roman government has a system that allows him to make, it, make his case, but it requires that he actually be found guilty before they can punish him. And so one thing that happens here is Festus, the new ruler, this man who's just taken the place of Felix, he shows up. He's been on the job in Caesarea for eight days, and then he meets with Paul. And Paul argues his defense before Festus, just like he did before Felix two years earlier. And once again, there's no evidence against him. And yet we find out what kind of a man Festus is in verse 9, because it says Festus wished to do the Jews a favor and tries to send Paul back to Jerusalem, which is going to get him killed. Back where it all started, back where the mob tried to kill Paul. If Paul had agreed to this... Or if he hadn't opposed it, the Jews would have loved Festus. They would have killed Paul. And it would have been a fantastic introduction to this new ruler. Festus would have had so much to gain if they'd actually done this. Now, this is actually a pretty scary moment. It, it just looks like a lot of paperwork being shuffled around. And all of this moving Paul from place to place sounds like administrative chess a little bit. But Paul realizes what's going on. He says, I'm in the lion's mouth right now. And if I get sent to Jerusalem, I'm a dead man. And all Festus has to do is say, eh, you're going back to Jerusalem and we'll see how you, how you do there. All he has to do is that. 
And if he had said that, Paul would have had to go. But Paul responds with a very shrewd understanding of the legal system in Rome. He says, if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. So he wants to meet Nero face to face and defend himself before the highest court, the highest individual in the entire empire. And the response he receives from Festus after getting some advice from his lawyers, it looks like, is to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. A lot of this is sort of formal courtroom arguments. Um, When I was younger, I don't remember the first novel that I read, but I remember when I was in high school, I started reading novels. And the first novels I was reading were John Grisham novels. And uh, if any of you are John Grisham readers, then maybe you've read your share of courtroom jockeying and arguments and things like that. And I, I think I probably ate it up. I think I read like five or six or seven John Grisham novels. And I started reading them because I thought that girls would think it was really attractive that I was reading thick books. And then I realized that does not actually work. Uh, do not try to uh, win a woman by reading a giant book. Uh, usually it doesn't work anyway. Um, but I started reading these books and I started to really have an appreciation for the courtroom, at least the way they were portrayed in the books. And part of the, part of the draw of the courtroom is that once things are in the court, the facts have come out. And in an ideal courtroom, it shouldn't matter who has more power or who has more money. The only thing that should matter is the truth. Well, in this situation, maybe Festus would like to do a favor for the Jews, but it's out of his hands. Paul has appealed to Caesar. What does Paul teach us here? I think that one of the first things that he teaches us is that if we're earthly citizens, then we should be earthly citizens. Uh, If we're Roman citizens, then let's put our Roman rights into action. If we're American citizens, then we have rights as American citizens. Being a Christian doesn't mean we just roll over and let injustices happen to us. If we fight back, if we can fight back through the government and through the the courts, then we are morally permitted to do that. If Paul can do it, then so can we. Um, And now there there are people who, appealing to Christian conviction, say, no, we should do the exact opposite. We should be almost like heavenly citizens who just have to live here for a while. Um, I, I'm from Kansas, as you all know, I think, by now. And one of the things that we have in Kansas that I still have not seen here is we have a very large Amish community in Kansas. And so when you're driving down the highway in Kansas, sometimes traffic is just backed way, way up. And eventually everyone ends up getting going again and you end up finding out, hey, someone had their horse and buggy out on the highway. And that's a real thing that happens. And if you've driven through Kansas, maybe you've gotten caught behind a buggy a time or two. Um, but the Amish, they have a very different way of life. They, I wouldn't say that they're opposed to modern advances. They're just slower to pick them up. I mean, they, they've gone internet now. They, you can go on the internet and buy Amish furniture and buy Amish food. And by the way, you should because it's really good. Um, but, but they don't only shun technology. They also shun government involvement as much as possible. So they don't even pay social security taxes. They don't buy insurance. They don't send their children to public schools. 
And some of you may think, those things sound pretty fantastic. I kind of like all of those things, actually. Um, but they, they represent the extreme end of what Paul doesn't do. See, Paul embraces his earthly citizenship. He submits to the Roman government. He understands their laws. He lives by their rulings. Even the unjust ones. Even the ones that leave him shut up in prison for two years. This sort of lifestyle should define us. We are earthly citizens, and being earthly citizens, too, doesn't negate that. Now, I make one more application, and I hope you don't feel like I'm reaching a bit much with this point. Uh, but earlier this week, there was a young, a young Christian woman in Australia, and she wrote an article about how it is increasingly difficult for a Christian young woman to find a man aged 25 to 35 who's church-going, single, and what she called worldly-wise. And what she meant by worldly-wise was she said they, they've got their stuff together. They're not socially awkward. Uh, he can hold a conversation with a woman without staring at his feet the whole time, you know? And she said, and I think what she was saying was, it's hard to find men who know what it is to be a man. Manly men, not brutes, not apes, but men. The sort of fellows that know how to carry on a conversation with a lady, treat her properly, give her the respect that's due to a woman. The sort of things that a father is supposed to teach his son. And the reality is that the statistics tell us that there are more women embracing Christianity than men in the world around the world right now. And that has actually been the, generally the trend in history. The, uh, the Great Awakening, it was more women that were coming to Christ during the Great Awakening. Um, and I would just say this. Um, those men who are church-going can often not be worldly wise. Um, as men, we should strive not to, not to <laughs> strive to not be socially awkward, but we need to also raise our sons to be worldly wise and to know what it is to be a man in this world. Um, and if I might put a fine point on it, they need to meet people, uh, sons especially. They need to be out. Our children should not be sheltered from the world. They should live in it. They should be exposed to it. Or we will raise a generation of children who may be Christian and they may be single, but they will struggle to find a spouse and care for their family because they've been raised as if the world isn't real, as if it isn't actually out there. See, Paul lives as someone who really is in the world. He embraces his earthly citizenship. He realizes, I am here. This place is real. What happens here matters. And we need to do the same. The third principle I want you to see this morning is the heavenly verdict. So notice that the thing which sustains Paul through his extended prison stay, the thing that Paul seeks above all else is not a favorable earthly verdict. Not really. For Paul, above all else, the most important thing to him is God's verdict. Earthly verdicts can fail. Earthly courts can fail. Back in 2015, fire chief of the city of Atlanta was fired because he had Christian religious beliefs. The city didn't like his religious and ethical views. They said he couldn't be a fair boss because there were some things that he believed were sins. So these sort of things do happen to Christians, and it could happen to you someday, especially if you try to work in the public arena. Someone might turn a microscope on your life. They might start to ask, what does this person believe? What does this person's church believe? 
Now, the courts ended up finding in the Atlanta fire chief's favor, arguing that he was indeed discriminated against because of his beliefs. But that process took three years before justice was served. And let me tell you, it won't always be served. So what do you do when your community's against you, when your neighbors are against you, maybe even your own family is against you? What do you do when it really does feel like you're running out of supporters and you feel alone? Maybe even those close to you don't believe you're innocent. Maybe your own church family doesn't believe you. Maybe you've been falsely accused. Ultimately, we have to find our comfort in the heavenly verdict, even if a fair earthly verdict absolutely eludes us. And for the Christian, what is that? Courts may find you guilty. The city, the community, the whole country may revile you and pronounce you guilty. Everyone may call you names and decide you're the villain and you're the problem with this world. And you're the reason people don't want to go to church anymore. The world may have their verdict. And you know what? If you're a Christian, then God in Christ has looked at you and he has said, Not guilty. Not because you're a good person and not because you've lived a sinless life, but because his son who is a sinless person, his son who lived a sinless life, took your sin upon himself and gave you all his righteousness. And now when the father looks at you, he's able to say, not guilty. And so Paul can sit in prison and he can sing Psalm 118.6. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Paul can sing that. The most important verdict in Paul's life happened on the Damascus Road. He was going to kill Christians. But it was God who arrested him. And the verdict that Paul heard from the heart of God was those two precious words, not guilty. And I don't know what's ahead for you. I can't specifically spell out every single evil that you will experience in this life. I can't predict if you'll experience persecution or what that persecution might look like. I don't know what America will look like 20 to 30 years from now on a cultural and political level. And maybe you won't even be in America. Maybe God will be gracious and call you to a foreign country where you will be a missionary in a hostile place. I do not know where you will be. There's no telling. But you may find yourself someday yearning to be vindicated, knowing that you are innocent, knowing that the charges are false. And and maybe justice will be served for you, but I want you to be prepared for the fact that it may not. What does Romans 4.25 say? Jesus Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The most important verdict that you will ever hear happened at the cross and at the tomb. And because of that truth, whatever comes in this life, whatever persecution comes, whatever lies people may tell about us, 
God has arranged events and given us his son so that we can face anything so that words like this can pour out of our hearts and mouths, even in our darkest hour. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If God is for us, who can be against us? Those words keep Paul going. Even when life is deeply unfair. Let's pray. Our Father, when we need it most, would you remind us of your promises? Would you remind us of your sure and steady verdict? Even if no one believes us, even if it feels like everyone is against us, would you give us the comfort of a clear conscience? Would you give us the stability of the very clear verdict that you pronounce over each and every one of your people not guilty? Would you help us to stand and to do what's right, even when it feels like it's going to cost us everything? We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.